Good evening, everyone. I'm Joseph Cotto. Joining me tonight is Patrick Basham, the head of the Democracy Institute and a very longtime friend of the show. Patrick, how's it going? It's going very well, Joseph. Uh, thank you for the invitation. Great to be with you and your fine audience. Looking forward to the conversation. Uh, our last chat was very interesting. Of course, our discussions always are interesting, but it was from uh, you were at the Future Investment Initiative in Riyadh, and that was obviously a discussion more in line with business and economics than tonight's, which is going to be about uh, polling and the 2024 election cycle. For those who don't know, uh, the Democracy Institute does a lot of polling, private and public, uh, and you are contracted with the Daily Express, which is an English newspaper, to do uh, polling for them about the 2024 presidential cycle. So there's a lot to discuss now, and there will be a lot to discuss. Uh, and I think one thing to address before we get into anything is that, uh, you, you know, the difference between private and public polling, private polling is done without the intention of it being made, uh, you know, public knowledge. Uh, public polling is done for you know media outlets stuff universities stuff like that but there often is a difference in the methodology between private and public polling uh and the democracy institute does not make that differentiation which is very important because it speaks to the accuracy of results patrick if you wouldn't mind telling the uh, audience about why it is so important to denote private from public polling that would be greatly appreciated sure i mean the the major advantage to private polling is that you, both as the pollster and as the organization, individual, whomever, government contracting the poll, is that you can literally ask the very questions that you are most interested in getting answers to. You don't have to worry about whether someone is going to criticize you for asking this question rather than that question, or using this particular language rather than that particular language, and all of that. And so, especially these days, in this uh, woke nirvana, nirvana or nightmare that we uh, wake up to each morning, uh, you know, the, those are concerns which, um, you know, you, you don't need that kind of constraint because all those things do, all those sort of optics issues, all they, all they do is cloud the issue and they make it less and less likely that your polling will be uh, accurate. Uh, so that's, that's an important distinction. Um, and the fact that the results won't be made public well, unless the sponsor organization decides they want to do it, um, can, can be helpful uh, because there are results which, whether it's on the part of the pollster or on the part of the sponsor, the sponsor, which, you know, folks will see a result and if they don't like it, uh, and they're the ones who usually make most of the noise, if they don't like it, they might attack the sponsor or might attack the pollster or both uh, because apparently the pollster or the sponsor, you know, predetermines the outcome. Uh, and so that the fact that many people don't understand that that isn't or at least shouldn't be the case means that confidentiality of results as well as as well as methods uh, can be very helpful. Again, if you're actually looking for the most accurate uh, outcomes, um, whereas you see with with public polling, uh, there is potentially the issue of whether the optics are in any way influencing the questions that are asked, who they're asked, of whom they are asked and the actual results themselves. And so this is the, the issue that one runs into, uh, let's say, with a lot of academic university college sponsored polls or some of the media polls. And I think in many cases, it's less 
about predetermined answers, or should I say, it's less about fudging the, the numbers. So we get these numbers and then we change the numbers. It's more a question, I think, of the questions that are asked, the questions that are not asked, and uh, issues related to the methodology in terms of uh, the, 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 the voters that are surveyed. You know, what's the weighting, um, how, how uh, accurate, how precise, how informed is the selection process? Uh, in, in terms of who's asked, because that is, is we've discussed you know, many times, Joseph, uh, you know, uh, determining who you're going to ask is uh, it goes a long way, can go a long way to determining what the outcome of those those questions will be. Um, so all of these things will play a role. So from the pollster's point of view, you have more freedom to do the best job you can in a private poll. The downside for the most of the pollster, of course, is that most of the time you don't get any recognition, public recognition, or any credit for it. Uh, uh, you know, which is which carries some of the oxygen. But the truth of the matter is, if you have a track record of pri accurate private polling, um, then within the circles that contract that kind of work, you know that that becomes known, and so you're actually fine anyway. It's more a question of your you don't you don't get your ego rubbed uh, to the degree if it, they were public, but of course you also don't get your ego smashed the way that uh, you do when it's public. So these you know that those I think that the other are the basic or the more more important differences. Uh, we try to you alluded to the fact that we try to em uh, employ as rigorous a methodology uh, in both public and private polling. Um, increasingly, we're doing more and more po public polling, as you say. We've now, in our third consecutive American election cycle, uh, polling for the Daily Express, and so we hope that what we do publicly, you know, uh, stands up as well as what we do privately. But again, you know, it's art, it's a combination of art and science uh, for any pollster, and all you can hope to do is, you know, tweak your tweak your methodology, etc., and uh, continue to get a little bit better, a little bit better. Because it is, it is an. It's not only is it as much art as science, but it's an imperfect art as well as an imperfect science. Uh, talking about it being a combination of art and science is fascinating because uh, a lot of people tend to believe that polling, uh, because it's so numerical, uh, it can only be scientific. But as you brought up, there is an artistic element. Uh, I guess explain how science and art intersect in the realm of polling. Sure. Well, you have. I mean, the notion, the, the sense is. Well, at least it was until recent elections when most pollsters, you know, did did quite poorly. The sense is that polling has become more and more scientific because the statistics undermining it have become more rigorous and more widely understood and more widely applied. Technology literally has has you know has advanced in terms of how one reaches how one how one um, finds the voters uh, to contact and and how one literally reaches them. Right, mm -hmm. so. All of this gives a veneer of, 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 a, of, science, uh, of science to it. And there is, you might say, more science applied, or at least makes more technology applied. But the truth of the matter is that human beings remain human beings. And I would argue that they haven't evolved to the extent that the science of the technology has evolved. As it has evolved. Mm -hmm. And that means that in terms of not just determining who you speak to, but how you speak to them, you know, the nature of the questionnaire, for example, I mean, it's always been, well, it has been over some time, that the wording of questions, the order of questions, uh, all of this, you know, can matter at the margin a great deal. Cumulatively, it can matter a lot. Uh, 
uh, perhaps uh, you know you can determine which way your poll goes or at least which way it's, it's, it is interpreted um, and that is where I think a lot of the art comes in uh, you know having an understanding of which questions are important right now uh, to talk to speak to what is on voters minds today but also what they are thinking about what may be coming up Right. Um, and I mean, some questions, you know, are obvious in terms of, you know, who you're going to vote for for president, who you're going to vote for in the next House election, etc. But if you do longer surveys, as we tend to do, at least our Daily Express surveys are quite long um, and there are downsides to doing long surveys these days, uh, is that it gives us an opportunity to ask lots and lots of questions about lots of what we think are interesting topics and to bring in some topics that might not have been discussed previously. Right. So we were one of the first to start asking questions um, about how people felt about the Biden family, the alleged Biden family corruption. Um, and back in early into the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, we, we were asking whether folks supported the, 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 the Western, the US position in support of Ukraine or not. But we also were quite early started asking whether they thought the cost of the sanctions was worth it, uh, whether they wanted Putin removed, all these sorts of questions, which um, are, uh, that's where sort of, sort of the art comes in. You know, is that you have to determine, and it's a judgment call, is that an important question? Uh, and that is, could the answer be interesting? Could the answer be important, whatever it may be? Uh, and often, you know, I have a sense, I, well, I, have, I have an educated guess as to what the answer may be, but I can't be certain until we ask. And sometimes I'm shocked, sometimes I'm surprised, and sometimes my uh, preconceived notion is, is, is it's borne out by the results. Um, but you don't know until you ask people. So what questions are people going to be able to answer? And when you ask a question, and we go into this recently with the Middle East polling, you know, you have to give, particularly when it comes to foreign policy matters, you often have to give some context. And of course, how do you give context without leading mm -hmm. um, a respondent down a particular path, which is the thing you, you shouldn't do and don't want to do if you're looking for an accurate poll. So you have to really be very, very fussy and it's not scientific at all, but fussy in terms of trying to eliminate as much bias as possible. Um, and all these sorts of things, you know, uh, are built in, hopefully, um, to any given questionnaire. Um, so if you do a short questionnaire asking only the obvious questions, there's less likelihood of trouble in the sense of going off course. But of course, you're not delving deeply into any issues and you're not looking at the broader landscape. Right. So mm -hmm. it's always a balancing act. You know, and science, a balancing act in terms of length of questionnaire, um, how the questions are asked. And of course, the art and science of, this, of determining who you find, because you can what happens so often uh, with and it really is one of one of the issues has been the issues in the 2020, 2016 presidential elections is that many pollsters, particularly mainly media and, and academic pollsters are asking um, I wouldn't say necessarily enough Republicans, but asking a lot of Republicans for their their uh, their vote uh, preferences, but not bothering about who those Republicans were. Right. So we had a huge skew um, away from working class Republicans or people inclined to vote Republican because Trump was running um, towards the more establishment, quote unquote, moderate middle upper class, well-educated Republicans who were less keen and remain less keen on Trump. Um, than the new Republican wave is, uh, you know, and that that changes your results. So you you asked enough Republicans, but 
you didn't ask the Republicans who actually reflected what was going on in real time. So all of these things, I say, are, are judgment calls. Uh, and it's a question, one of the only few advantages of doing this a long time and, you know, getting older and getting more and more battle scars is you, hopefully, if your eyes and ears are open and your brain's still working, then you, you know, you learn from the mistakes and you learn from where, what, what educated guesses you made, what judgment calls you made uh, seem to have paid off in terms of interesting, useful results. And so when you're doing, just to sort of circle back to the public-private um, contrast, with public polling, it's often more about interesting, right? And particularly with the media, because the media are looking, I mean, they're looking for good results, but they're obviously looking for headlines as well. Uh, but with private polling, you're looking more, often more for bottom line numbers. So if it's a business sponsor or a government sponsor or, a, let's say, a private investor, you know, you're looking for some bottom line. How are people acting? What are they going to, what are they, that's just what they're thinking, but what are they acting upon? What will they act upon rather than a more hypothetical, uh, what do they think of something happening 10,000 miles away that doesn't directly impact them? So all of these things go into the, into the pot. Anyway, it's a very long, much longer answer than I probably should oh, have given. Uh, but uh, that's, you know, that, that, that's some of the, uh, the color of uh, of that contrast uh it, it's fascinating because obviously private polling has a much better track record than public polling does i have seen some firms that on the same week <clears throat> they did a public poll uh their private poll was leaked either intentionally yeah. or not uh and the, the methodology is different uh, even though they're talking they're polling about the same event so it's fascinating, uh, the, this differentiation. And people definitely should be aware of it. Hopefully more are now after that discussion. Getting into polling, there's one very, very interesting poll that you've done recently that will be the centerpiece of the conversation. But before that, there must be some uh, exposition. Uh, there was an article published in the Daily Express two months ago uh, by Matthew Dooley titled Panicking Dems Rethinking Biden Re-Election After Voters Turn on President in polls. It begins, Joe Biden's 2024 election campaign may be in trouble as most voters are, quote, worried about the president's competence for the next five years, end quote. Former National Security Advisor John Bolton exclusively told Daily Express U.S. The comments come on the back of exclusive polling for the Express, which showed most voters feel Biden is, quote, too old, corrupt, and incompetent, end quote, to be leader of the free world. Skipping down a bit to information about the polling, uh, uh, according to the survey of 1,500 likely American voters, 56% disapprove of Biden's record as president, 67% think he is too old to be the leader of the free world, 74% think he has the USA going in the wrong direction, and 59% believe his administration is incompetent. And I'll stop reading there, but obviously this polling was done by the Democracy Institute. And that brings us to some more uh, recent polls, uh, a slew of them actually, uh, a rather uh, fascinating development I think one can see across them. Uh, this month alone in various surveys, when independents are uh, measured, monitored, whatever, uh, from CBS, Trump is up 10 points over Biden, 
Quinnipiac has them tied. CNN has Trump up four. Harris X has Trump up 14. Fox News has Trump up 16. NBC has Trump 11. And the average is Trump being up nine over Biden among independents. And it's interesting because Fox News, NBC, CNN, Quinnipiac, uh, and CBS definitely not polls which are traditionally friendly towards Trump. They have certainly uh, understated Republican support in the past. So really consequential to hear that. Then looking at the uh, overall election, this is from uh, John McLaughlin. Uh, He is a Republican pollster, but he is a very, very uh, long-term one. He's been in the business for a while. He has a, a very good track record. He does a lot of private polling, obviously, for campaigns. This one was released to the public. I can't imagine his methodology is any different, whether it's private or public polling. Anyway, the poll uh, found that Trump is up by six points over Biden, 49 to 43. Uh, And when you factor in third-party candidates, including RFK Jr., Cornell West, Joe Manchin, and Jill Stein, uh, Trump is up by four. And uh, he's up by 11 over Kamala Harris. And this poll was done uh, between the 16th and 20th of November this month. So that's definitely consequential. And uh, looking at the NBC News poll, I'm reading the tweet from Interactive Polls, uh, a record high 73% of Americans say the direction of the country is off on the wrong track. In the 2024 general election, Trump leads Biden by 11 points among independents and persuadable voters, 42 to 31. Trump is ahead of Biden for the first time in NBC polling history, 46 to 44. President Biden is the lowest job approval of any incumbent running for re-election at this time in office. Biden's numbers are weaker than Trump's at this time in office. And skipping down a bit, a record low 19% of Americans feel confident that life for our children's generation will be better than it has been for us. This is the lowest number ever in over 30 years. Uh, So I'll stop reading there, but that last statistic definitely is something worth bringing up because I do think it explains why a lot of people are supporting Trump, even though they have serious uh, personal misgivings about him. Uh, You know, there are all the controversies swirling around by now of a legal nature, Uh, but he's still, he's doing remarkably well, far better than he was at this point in 2019. Uh, So uh, something is definitely happening. Patrick, I've gone over a lot of numbers Mm. here, uh, and I will go over a few more, but anything to say about what I have read thus far? Well, what it shows, Joseph, is that the um, major media polls and the many of the major academic polls are, are catching up. Right. Mm-hmm. So they didn't do well in 2016. They all said Hillary was going to win and win comfortably. They all said Biden was going to win in a landslide in, in 2020. And part of the reason they, for that um, sort of, uh, that that's uh, consecutive those consecutive errors was they, they didn't see any reason to update their methods, as far as I could tell, from the outside over those four years. But I think there has been some methodology, some tweaking of the methodology, uh, which which is helpful. And, um, and I think also a recognition that um, they might not survive another performance, you know, a third, sort of a, 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 th- a, a three-peat of, um, of, of poor results on, on the polling front. Um, so what we're seeing now is most of the mainstream media polling and the academic polling, college polling, uh, I'm going to say catching up and presenting results that are overlapping with comparable to those of um, 
a relatively small number of private pollsters who over the last couple of elections have been far closer to the mark uh, than the media and college polling is. So, you know, whether it's Richard Barris or the Trafalgar group, or you mentioned John McLaughlin, um, others, um, it's um, Democracy Institute, I think it's fair to throw in. Um, what we were saying and we've continued to say is the numbers, yes, have evolved and got better for Trump. There's no question. It, it, um, is what they're now saying in abundance. And this is, of course, now why the public, com what passes for the public conversation, that is what the media is saying. This is why the, de you know, you publicly Democrats and journalists are discussing whether Biden should be pushed aside. Can Biden win re-election? All these questions they weren't publicly discussing, um, in part because they didn't want to show weakness, but in large mm -hmm. part because they didn't think it was the case, right? They just assumed that the propaganda was true, that Biden was doing very well, that Trump couldn't win. Uh, in fact, you know, Trump would be the worst Republican candidate. Um, Biden was strong. And we were looking at, at worst, from the Democratic point of view, a repeat of a close Biden, a close victory a la 2020. Because that seems so unattainable right now, uh, there's now this conversation, which is and they have now have all this data. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because... Mm -hmm. These media polls that were so wrong for so long, but weren't critiqued um, by the system, by the establishment, um, they're now saying what those of us who were castigated for saying comparable things, uh, and yet they are now the new gospel, right? <laughs> I presume that, I say whether it's Richard Barris, Trafalgar Group, um, others, uh, Democracy Institute, whether I presume our apologies, our written apologies are in the mail. And we just the fact that the, the, the inefficiency of the U.S. Postal Service is why we haven't received them yet. I mean, one has to assume that these are gentlemen and ladies, right, um, in the media and elsewhere. And um, of course. They, they are acting um, with, with, their, with their usual class. Um, I'm confident in that. Anyway, they are acting with their usual class. So. You know, that's where we are. But of course, what does it mean in terms of the election? It means that everyone now agrees that this is an uphill fight for Joe Biden. Um, and that, you know, what, what was, you might recall, I mean, you will recall vividly, after the 2022 midterms, of course, there was this, there was, you know, relief on the part of the Democrats because the, their loss was minimal compared with what they and everyone else expected. Um, and then on the Republican side, there was great frustration and dismay. And the Republicans spoke as if they had lost, right? In mm -hmm. term, you, know, you never think they won back the House because of the way they spoke about it. Mm -hmm. And the conventional wisdom was that whatever went wrong for the Republicans was Trump's fault. And he was the he he is he is what needed to be you know removed from the Republican ticket in 2024. Mm -hmm. And um I was one of those who argued that that was the exact wrong way round in terms of the analysis. And I think that myself and others who've been arguing that for 18 months, um, it sorry, for 18 months, for, for, for 10 months, 10, 12 months, uh, it's starting, our, our forecasts are the ones starting to bear fruit here, we're actually been bearing fruit all year, where it's become blindingly obvious it's been obvious all along but it's become blindingly obvious that if you want to if you if you want a republican president to, to elected in 2024 then not only is trump your best hope he may be your only hope i mean that's one great irony 
And then on the Democratic side, if you want a Democrat elected in 2024, then Biden may not only be the best hope for the Democrats, but he may be their only hope. And so it's quite possible, in fact, it's likely that the both parties will nominate the, the, the candidate that gives them the best, perhaps the only chance of either retaining or of winning back the White House. Um, and so the Republicans, you know, assuming that all of us are to some extent correct and that the advantages with Trump to a significant degree, then the Republicans have to decide over the next couple of months how bloody they want this coronation to be, right? So it's going to be in, in electoral terms, in terms of the primaries and caucuses, it's going to be a coronation. So the question is, do you want that to be as positive, as seamless as possible, or do you want it to be as drawn out and bloody and vindictive um, as possible? And on the Democratic side, they have to figure out, do they... What do they do? They think that Biden, a flawed, to say, wounded, um, disliked Biden, is still their best hope, and they'll base that in, on two things. I think part and part, um, what most of the rest of us based on is: is there a, is there a better alternative within the Democratic Party? But the other part of their calculation, their calculus, uh, be the extent to which they still are drinking the the Kool-Aid over Trump being unelectable, right? Because uh, those who think he remains unelectable uh, may be more inclined to um, to keep Biden in. The irony, of course, is I think they'd be right from their point of view, to perspective, to their self-interest to keep him in, even if for the wrong reasons. Uh, so, and of course, then you have the situation which we and others are, are now um, you know, polling vigorously, which is the question of what happens with so many independent candidates, uh, most obviously Robert Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, but not the only one who might have an impact on this. And some of this is, you know, virgin territory, right? And much discussion, and I mean, our efforts and others trying to figure out, one, the extent to which someone like RFK Jr. is going to actually garner support through the next 12 months. But secondly, from whom will that support disproportionately come and where geographically where it will it come uh, will it occur um, because the answer to the first question of how much support he gets even if it's a lot may not um, be incredibly influential if the groups that support him and especially where they're where they're located where they vote um, aren't uh, swing states swing swing districts etc so Everybody is not singing from the same page of the hymn sheet mm -hmm. uh, of the hymn book right now in terms of polling. But I think we all seem to at least have picked up the same hymn book, uh, mm -hmm. and which was not the case for the last how many elections, you know, certainly since Trump came on the scene in 2015. So I think this is encouraging. Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> all to be decided in terms of uh, what, what happens, because with the effort to Trump the effort to delegitimize and criminalize literally Trump failing so miserably, um, one has to wonder whether there are any other um, shots that the Democrats and the media and the um, political establishment and the judicial system can fire at him, right? And depending on whether there are or not, um, may determine whether 
the media and the and the media polling and the academic polling um, turns one way or another. I mean, we might, for example, get even more of this with even starker, more dire results for Biden, um, because the goal is to get him out to sort of so that whether he goes away, at least the people around him make him go away because it's, it's determined that he cannot win, he cannot be reelected. Um, and then someone else comes in or potentially comes in and then that person or those potential candidates are appear to do very well in the polls against Trump. You know, so we may get those sort of temporary changes one direction or another. But I think what we got, I mean, if, if, if the media and academic polling continues to be better than it has been, then I think it will continue to show these levels of support for Trump. We don't quite know for sure what's going to happen on the Democratic side in terms of a little bit higher, a little bit lower. But it's hard to see, given all the underlying underlying factors that have, that are not just not just um, cementing Trump's support, but growing his support, um, how he isn't in a very strong position. Because the bottom line is, whatever one thinks of the official outcome of 2020, officially Trump did much better than in 2016, right, in terms of volume of votes and his growth amongst every demographic group. In what we know for a fact, and as they don't have to listen to me or others who have, quote-unquote, been wrong in the past that means we've been right regularly in the past but you listen to those who we're supposed to listen to those who are the, the, the who are the um the sort of biblical pollsters and um, who have the uh, the you know the, the tablets on the on the carved on the mount their numbers say that trump is doing far better than in 2020 mm -hmm. um, across the board but also with with key groups that are so important to the to, to, to a democratic uh, incumbent's re-election. So that alone tells you how strong Trump's position is. The question is, can he and the Republicans blow it in the next eleven months? Can Biden, the Democrat, do something um, to, to to claw this back? I I wouldn't I wouldn't be shocked if the latter was true. That is, they the Democrats that are Biden are able to maximize their vote real and imagined to the fullest i doubt that trump is going to blow it but i wouldn't put it past the republicans to do their utmost to blow it on his behalf mm -hmm. uh you know there, there are a few things to bring up before you move along but one of them is that trump tends to bring out voters who are atypical obviously in support of the gop many who do not support the gop at all uh so obviously if you're polling republicans about their support of trump uh you're going to be probably missing out on a strong segment of trump's base who are independents uh in 2016 there was an edge that was democratic for sure in places like the deep south and west virginia and the rust belt but by now a lot of these people have left the democratic party uh now there is also the question the very serious question about how can it be and this is what a lot of people on the left think how can it be that trump is doing this well in polls when the republicans are not doing so well when it comes to these off-year elections whether you're talking about uh you know the midterms or what happened in 2021 uh and 2023 although 2021 the republicans did very well in virginia uh mm -hmm. they did better than expected in new jersey 
But uh, some people thought the Republicans had an underwhelming performance then, whatever. But there's no question that most people thought the GOP had an underwhelming performance in 2023 this year, even though if you look at the elections, it's actually not any sort of uh, blue wave. In fact, the Republicans did astoundingly well in Long Island, which goes from suburban New York City to virtually New England. Uh, it's a big island. Uh, and it's, it has not been this Republican since the 1970s. Uh, and of course, course, Republicans lost the uh, gubernatorial election in Kentucky, uh, but uh, they won every other statewide election in Kentucky, and they have super majorities in both houses of the state le Commonwealth legislature. Uh, so it's not like they really did badly there, uh, and they held their own in Mississippi. Uh, and in Louisiana, they actually cleaned, uh, they, they had a, a clean sweep. Uh, they did remarkably well in Louisiana. So the Republicans this year did not do badly across the board. What happened is that whenever the abortion issue came up, as it did in the gubernatorial election in Kentucky. Uh, some people say the Republicans lost in Ohio, but that was really a nonpartisan thing where quite a few Republicans supported the pro-choice perspective of enshrining abortion in the state constitution. Uh, so I wouldn't count that as a Republican loss. That was just a, an issue that was being dealt with by the electorate uh, on a surprisingly bipartisan basis and with very strong independent support, even though independents in Ohio uh, obviously break strongly for Trump, and yet they voted for the pro-choice amendment. Go figure. Uh, I'm not surprised, but some people are. So what we see here in, in 2023 is that the Republicans are not really doomed. Uh, the party's brand is not terrible. Uh, the party can win back places. It hasn't found this level of dominance since the 1970s in very, very rough turf like New York, talking about happening on Long Island. The problem is that this abortion issue uh, does very, very badly for the GOP. And Trump obviously has been distancing himself from uh, the, uh, the, the so-called pro-life hardliners. And that has not hurt him at all in the Republican primary. Uh, and it certainly has done well for him in terms of the general electorate. That's why you, in part you see him doing as well as you see him doing in these polls. So, uh, you know, obviously the 2022 midterms were underwhelming for the GOP, but largely because of the abortion issue. Once again, I don't need to get into that. That's a year old already. But, uh, you, you know, the, the thing of it is, is that uh, a, a lot of people on the left look at the polls. They say Trump can't be doing this well because mm. look at how the Republicans are doing these elections. Uh, and I think the Republicans also, yeah, they picked up a, may, uh, a mayorality in New Hampshire. I believe it was Manchester, uh, typically votes Democrat, which typically votes Democratic nowadays. So the fact of the matter is that the GOP can win. Uh, it's just that this issue sidetracks it. But one should not look at Trump's uh, polling data and think it's wrong because the GOP does poorly in some cases. Uh, it's because of this issue, the abortion issue that keeps coming up. And I do think it has been overstated how badly, quote unquote badly, the GOP did this year. Because as I said, uh, they had more successes than not. Uh, of course, they also uh, lost narrowly the Virginia House, which they only had narrowly, and they failed to win the Virginia Senate. But even if you factor uh, the, the Virginia state legislative elections together with the Kentucky gubernatorial election, on the whole, the GOP still did better than uh, the, than not. Uh, so, you know, just looking at all things, uh, throwing them into consideration. Patrick, anything to say about anything that I've brought up? Yeah, I think it's it's useful, Joseph. Um, you know your your uh, survey of how the Republicans did because it was mixed, uh, but it was far closer to decent than it was to terrible. Um, I mean, in Virginia, for example, right? Um, they 
some Republicans held out hope of them winning both chambers, which uh -huh. I think was always um, rather um, naive or massively optimistic. However, they came close to doing that. And what's interesting, if you look at the results, they, you know, by um, by district, they they won all the they won in all the places that Trump had won. They won in mostly all the places that Biden had won narrowly, um, but they lost in the places that Biden had won comfortably. And we're talking about what is it used to be thought, well, fairly recently thought of as purple Virginia, but it's actually kind of quite blue Virginia, sure. pale, pale blue Virginia. Right. So. Um, you get these exceptional gubernatorial results, which aren't necessarily uh, predictive on the presidential level, national level. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so the Republicans, there is a, I would say a backlash in Virginia against Biden, the Democrats, but there's certainly frustration and disappointment. And so what I think actually Virginia is, is in truth one of the more encouraging set of results because it shows that independents and suburbanites and ex-Republicans and moderate Democrats, as much as they still exist, um, are sufficiently dismayed with Biden and disappointed that they will consider and will actually vote Republican again, um, you know, at specific times. So doesn't I, I don't mean to suggest that I think Virginia is necessarily in play for 2024. But if you extrapolate from that, there are those kinds of a lot of those kinds of areas around the country. Um, and it probably bodes better for Republicans congressionally than in terms of the presidential election, because most of those areas are in solidly blue states. You talk about Manchester, New Hampshire. I mean, the other one um, that I found fascinating was the Republicans have won the, the mayor's seat in um, Frone in Charleston. Yes, that uh, just the happened. First, first time since, was it late 19th century, something like that? Early since 20th the late, late 1870s. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, which is, which is, maybe many people will be surprised that they haven't had it since then, but that's it, you know, it, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, but what I think all, what's, what's going on here is actually much better news for Trump than the Republicans. I mean, the Republicans are, are uh, marginally ahead in terms of the uh, generic ballot mm -hmm. and um, in terms of voter intention have the advantage at this point regarding the, 2024 congressional elections, uh, both House and Senate. Now, what we don't know, based not entirely, but especially based on the 2022 experience, is we don't know who's actually going to show up and vote. Absolutely. Right? Um, the Democrats in 2022, putting all specific issues aside, did an absolutely marvelous job, and much of it under the radar, of focusing their very expensive, very well orchestrated get out the vote operation not nationally, but regionally yes. on swing districts, swing counties, swing precincts mm -hmm. in, you know, they, they absolutely threaded the needle and they were able to minimize their losses. The Republicans who are far more confident than the normal and far more confident than the Democrats and with good reason went with a national campaign that spread the wealth such as it was and spread the organizational effort and the instrumental mm -hmm. effort, instrumentation of that effort all over much of it in places that it wasn't needed right or wasn't going to make any difference mm -hmm. and so they got caught between two stools i think in a get out the vote sense um that could happen again in 2024 especially if you consider you know who's pulling the strings at the rnc wow. now so i would imagine that if trump isn't the candidate in 2024 the Republicans will again underperform 
vis-a-vis uh, -vis their national polling number on the generic ballot. However, it seems highly likely that Trump will be the Republican candidate, which means I think the Republicans will actually have the potential to, if not outperform, but at least hit that, maximize that um, intended vote. Mm -hmm. Because, or well, maybe because they get their act together in terms of uh, they get up the vote operation. But what I would put more stock in is the fact that, and you've alluded to this already, Joseph, is that the Republican vote in the next presidential election, as in in the 2016 and 22 presidential elections, is going to be made up of significant numbers of people who are only voting Republican mm -hmm. um, on the ballot because of Trump and are only showing up because of Trump, right? So mm -hmm. we, 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 in hindsight, look at our 2022 polling and see that we don't think that we were lied to in terms of who said they were going to vote Republican. But what we didn't do a good enough job of measuring was the fall off and what it's a small percentage, but a meaningful one of those who didn't and perhaps were never going to show up because mm -hmm. Trump wasn't on the ballot. Right. Um, so in 2024, Trump is going to have I think three legs to his his electoral stool in broad terms. He's going to have his 2016 and 2020 voters, right? And in fact, that is going to his, his 2020 vote is going to swell somewhat because although there are always voters who switch between elections, there's a there's a significant net plus that he gets from 2020. By that I mean, although there are some people who voted for Trump. Who will, who will end up voting for Biden or the Democrat. There are far, 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 far more Biden 2022 voters who are planning to vote for Trump in 2024. So that's, so again, further to what I was saying earlier, he did better in 20 than in 16. And we already know he's gonna do better with, with um, those regular voters in 2024, which puts him in a very, very strong position. But what the other two legs of the, of the stool are voters you might say non-voters, that is those who could have voted in the last elections but didn't, one of them, both of them, several of them. He is doing very, very well with those people who are now have now decided they're going to show up next time. The way that you know, many did in 16 who hadn't voted for a while, um, if ever, and many in 2020 did who hadn't voted for in a while or, or, or perhaps forever. Mm -hmm. So that unregistered vote is registering and intending to vote for Trump. The third leg of the stool uh, are new voters. And of course, your, your audience will recall, in many cases vividly, 20, 2008 especially, but also 2012, especially 2008, we know what a, um, what a role that new voters, then exclusively you know, millennial voters, played in Obama's um, success. You know, they voted in much higher numbers, they voted, in, you know, just dramatically one-sided, et cetera, et cetera. Republicans had never hadn't, been, hadn't counted, never counted on the youth vote. They counted, they counted on the uh, on the youth vote opposing them, but not in those kinds of in the, to that ratio, those proportions, and and that vault to that extent. But what we have now is we have new voters, so that is younger voters, disproportionately those who haven't been able to vote for, for before, never thought about voting, intending to vote and intending to vote. Um, disproportionately for Trump, or should I say, the the, the gap between the, the Trump and Biden um, is, gonna, is shrinking 
very, very quickly between the two for, for a whole bunch of reasons we may have time to, to get into. Sure. Um, so you look at those, those three legs of that stool and you see how Trump has once again expanded his electorate, right? Um, and so the question is, what can the Democrats do about that? Well, we found out in 2020, or should I say we found out in 2021, mm -hmm. in late 20 and into 2021 and ever since, that the Democrats expanded the electorate by expanding the number of ballots that were counted, yes. right? Um, and that was very clever, all, mm -hmm. you know, all ethics aside. Um, uh -huh. The question is, can they do that again? Can they successfully um, ballotize the election and get get themselves more votes than would on excuse the pun on paper appear to obviously or logically be there? In addition to that, they'll obviously be hoping to claw back <laughs> some of these gains that Trump has made among young voters, among minority voters, among female voters, etc. Um, and I think I mean they we're talking about 11 months so anything's possible in politics but that appears very 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 tall order at this point so it's massively advantaged trump and there's an advantage to the congressional republicans i mean the map is i mean the congressional map stays the same but with gerrymandering aside but the senatorial map changes obviously with each every two years and um it's sort of looking good in all kinds of ways, I think for the for the Republicans. So at the moment, I think they can be reasonably confident of getting the Senate back. But right, it's 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 so it's always early to too early to tell. And even later on, it can be dark to tell because the Republicans continue to nominate candidates that aren't the the best candidates or the candidates that aren't the most likely to to confirm in the minds of those Trump voters new um, new voters, old voters returning to the voting booth or existing voters, that they actually are part of the solution, not part of the problem, right? Um, the more that Republicans nominate congressionally and senatorially, you know, establishment, country club, corporate Republican types, you know, whether they will or will not be better representatives or not, for enough voters, that's anathema. And that's a real turnoff. And then it's not going to vote for them in the numbers required. So um, it's there for the Republicans to seize in the Senate and the House. But as we see regularly, the Republicans you know, are quite capable of blowing that opportunity. I say it's less likely that Trump blows his opportunity. And he, he will have coattails, just like he did in 2020. Uh, uh, Will it be enough to overcome any Republican sh party shortfalls uh, in various in various guises? I mean, that's that's like one of the outstanding questions at this point. You know, talking about <clears throat> Biden's supporter lack thereof among, among younger voters, it's definitely interesting because the shock NBC poll uh, yeah. from earlier this month revealed that Trump is actually up four points over Biden, forty six to forty two among voters aged 18 to 34. When I was a boy, this was thought of as the rock the vote vote. Uh, yes. And uh, I, I don't think rock the vote's that much of a big thing nowadays, but uh, it certainly was uh, way back when, not way, way back when, but you get the idea. Yep. Uh, certainly to, you know, 2000, in the 2000s. Uh, and there is 
really utter sh surprise uh, mm -hmm. for me and for others that there would ever be an NBC poll that shows Trump or any Republican, for that matter, in a presidential contest up 4% over the Democrat among uh, those aged 18 to 34. Uh, it's it's quite something else. Uh, it's, it's almost unbelievable. But I think it speaks to widespread disenchantment with Biden among this segment of the electorate. Uh, in 2020, CNN, their exit polling, showed that uh, among voters ages 18 to 29, Biden got 60% of the vote. So obviously this is, you know, obviously exit polling has to be taken with a grain of salt. But uh, this is definitely a massive come down for uh, Biden. I do think it speaks to disenchantment uh, that young voters have with him. Uh, voters who were old enough to support him in 2020, but also people who have aged into the electorate since then. Uh, it's really, uh, it, it's really astounding. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's one of those things I never thought I'd see, but here it is. Anything to say about this, Patrick, before we move along? Yeah, I think, I mean, I suspect that, you know, if we meet again um, in, in this or other forms, Joseph, um, you know, post-2024 election, mm -hmm. we're going to say that the youth vote was is one of the stories of the 2024 election, mm -hmm. right? And um, the fact that Trump is not just competing for more of it, but actually competing for it, um, you know, he could win it. Is, is is really something as you suggest um and it's i mean it's it's a it's a number of things it's principally in my view it's principally economic um broadly broadly defined i mean there's so much comes under that you know umbrella it's it's you know we could be here uh, for, for hours discussing that but i mean you you know you, the situation where so many young people are in broad terms looking at a looking at their financial future and thinking they don't really have one Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and this is not just people towards the bottom. These are people who've grown up reasonably comfortably and are mm -hmm. thinking, how on earth do I get a life that even comes within shouting distance of my parents? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and many of whom believe that their lives aren't anything like as good as their parents were. Mm -hmm. Right. So and so you have, you know, you've got the problem of like, you know, this year, for example, we have there, there are there's a huge drop off in seasonal employment. I mean, this is mm -hmm. Christmas coming up, right? Things always spike. Well, uh -huh. they're not spiking. They're going the other direction, right? Um, mm -hmm. You've got the um, the moratorium on student loan payments. That's over. So that's so people have had a year where they didn't have to pay that. And that's huge. I mean, it can be massive. It's meaningful to anybody, but it can be an enormous amount of money proportionate to your income, which for most people in their 20s is you know, on the lower side. Um, now, that's going to hit. Where does that money come from? You know, rents are double. Um, the notion more mortgages are, are, are unaffordable for many middle class people. But for younger people, how do you how do you put together that deposit? Right. That down payment. Um, how, and how do you make the mortgage payments, which are twice what they would have been a year ago? All these sorts of things on top of just the fact that food and gas and all the rest of it. You know, you got these these younger people who are having to you know leave their apartments. They can't afford the rent. So they're now living in their cars. Um, and many of them are having their cars taken away because they uh -huh. can't afford the, the payments all these things i mean this is just the reality for, for uh -huh. a lot a lot a lot of young people Absolutely. and and more and more of them so mm -hmm. there's a so as you say some of them a chunk of them voted for biden not with great enthusiasm but they sort of bought the myth the straw man argument against trump they 
went with Biden. A lot of it is sort of um, on the you know social value side of it, without in an under in a vague sort of a way, um, and uh, you know, and all of that. And so there's not a they don't have a history of voting for the Democrats. They just don't have a history of voting for, for, for maybe Biden, maybe maybe Obama. Um, they don't have this sort of died in the wall loyalty to the party the way that their parents or particularly their grandparents may, may have had. Um, and so to break that tie, that that connection isn't that difficult. Um, it's going to work. It can be easily overwhelmed by something more important, like the fact that you can't pay the rent, right? Or you can't pay your, your student loan, all these sorts of things. And of course, so this is affecting everybody, almost everybody. So it's, it's, it's affecting white, uh, sort of Anglo white young voters, uh to to a fair extent across the board it's affecting middle class uh young voters but of course where it's really really hitting home is among blue collar working class lower income or no income uh young voters and there of course is that is disproportionately but far from exclusively disproportionately minority hispanic latino um black young voters um, and it's 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 male and female. It's dis I say it's, it's disproportionately male, particularly on the black side of it. But it's you know it's so it's it's cutting through. The economics are cutting through some of the, these demographic groups, and this is this is just helping hurting Biden and helping Trump just tremendously, right? And then you throw on top of I mean, there's two things I would throw on top um, that I that are making a difference building upon that economic uh, frustration that see the economic frustration as it often does opens people's mind opens their minds their hearts their to the mm -hmm. notion that maybe they should reconsider or maybe they should take a second look at someone or some party in a way that they they wouldn't have before if times were good or at least okay mm -hmm. and so many people are reconsidering america's foreign policy because of the cost of their economic policy, right? So the cost of the Ukraine war, for example, as our polling has been indicating for well over a year, has been playing on the minds of Americans to the point where now for several months, we've found that a majority of Americans um, think that we shouldn't be spending any more money on it, whether whatever they think of Ukraine and Russia, and it's mostly anti-Russia and pro-Ukraine, but it's just if not it's it may not be a case yet if it's not our business but it's certainly a case of it's not our bill to pay right so that amongst young people that's even more the case because you've got these older people on the left in power and in the media suggesting that well if necessary we're just going to have to go to war you know we are going to have to whether it's in ukraine or elsewhere put our boots on the ground well those boots tend to be younger boots not in Ukraine anymore because all the younger people are dead, but they're, they're older boots, sadly. Um, again, a discussion perhaps for another day. But oh. here it would be younger boots on the ground. And younger people are not never particularly keen on that, but especially not keen when they think that the people who would send them have screwed everything else up in their lives. Mm. Right. So that's playing a role. The other thing that's playing a role, of course, is the the pro political prosecution and persecution of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. um, this is where economics marries um, a, a view that the system is rigged um, and puts Trump in such an enviable position.
because you've got in the case, for example, of, of, of black voters, particularly younger ones, particularly males, they rightly or wrongly, so many of them, especially the working class ones who often aren't, aren't able for one reason or another to actually work, at least not in the legal economy, um, to they have grown up believing, convinced that the system is rigged against them and that arbitrarily they will be punished um, ostracized, denied, ex prosecuted even, um, just for the fact that they are on the outside looking in and they're different, et cetera, et cetera. They find in Trump a sympathetic figure. They find someone who is so clearly being prosecuted because he is not just an irritant, he was initially an irritant, but is actually a threat to the system. And that the system that they are convinced is rigged economic. They've always been convinced is rigged economically and legally. They now are coming around to the view that the system is rigged politically as well. And that here's this person who, under his presidency, is undeniable, whatever you think of Trump, for the first time in anyone can remember, African Americans and Hispanics did better in net terms economically, right? They just simply did, and most people did, but the greatest gains, you know, the, the lowest poverty, the highest employment, the best wage gains for African-Americans and Hispanics were under Donald Trump. And that came to a crashing halt uh, when he left office. So they believe that he made some, and they were, they were surprised by that, surprised as many others, but they believe he made a tangible difference in their lives. And now he's being denied the chance to do that again. Uh, and you say the 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 politics here, the lawfare is so naked, so blindingly obvious. The Democrats are so terrified of this man. They're not terrified of the Republicans because they obviously they could be quite nice. And the media be quite nice to Republicans that don't like Trump. Mm -hmm, and absolutely. As young African Americans, they see this, they hear this, they you know they recognize this truth that Trump's crime is being a threat. To the system so he has gone that the system has inadvertently turned trump um into a martyr into a victim and young african-american men see that recognize it understand it right they and so they say well if this guy if they're after him like they're after us they must you know he must be on our side and to some extent, we should be on his side. So it's this incredible alliance that's forming um, mm. that no one could have predicted, even though, I mean, we saw in 2020 how the African-American vote was starting to move to Trump, the Hispanic vote. And it showed up in the exit polls to the surprise of all the experts. You know, Trump, Trump got the highest African-American vote in 2020 since Richard Nixon in 1960, which is not only sounds impressive, but it's super impressive when you consider that until the 60s, Republicans for a century had won the African-American vote and often quite comfortably, right? It seems impossible, seems counterintuitive to folks who've grown up in the last 50 years, but that was the reality. So Trump's achievement was incredible in 2020. Another reason why the official outcome is puzzling, shall we say. Um, and he's only built upon, built upon that. So it's not as if I'm not suggesting that the persecution of him has changed everything. 
it actually these this this evolution was in motion this this economic improve advancement amongst blacks was in motion what's happened is they've put the uh, the exclamation mark on it uh, they've underlined the difference that it made for trump to be president vis-a-vis uh, -vis biden or, or or even obama so something really significant is going on with young voters especially with young minority voters um, and depending on which demographic, which racial ethnic group, more with men or more with women. Uh, but it's it's very fundamental because the I mean, as I stressed in going over the 2020 results, explaining why Biden statistically couldn't have won um, in, in, in fact, is that, you know, Democrats simply cannot win. The, not, the arithmetic isn't there. They cannot win if they lose 15 to 20 percent of the African-American vote. They cannot win if they lose 35, 40, 45 percent of the Hispanic vote, mm -hmm. as George W. Bush demonstrated in 2004. You know, you just can't do it. Uh, Absolutely. And and Trump either hit or got close enough to those mm -hmm. numbers to make make Biden's um, election, I, I would argue, arithmetically impossible. But whatever happened in 2020, in 2024, the same arithmetic will apply. Trump is now in territory. He's not in in territory. He's beyond territory where the arithmetic doesn't work for Biden, the Democrats nationally in the presidential election. Now, obviously, that can change, but it will have to change because Trump isn't becoming dramatically unpopular with white voters. Right. Um, older voters are not deserting him. Um, he's, he's not lost all independence. In fact, even, you know, these groups, the, the, the sort of white suburbanite former Republican female who voted for Biden uh, and doesn't like Trump, they're not moving back in droves. But there is some indication that they're, they've lost their whatever enthusiasm they had for Biden. Uh, and, you know, it's even there, it's, it's getting a little shakier for the Democrats, where Trump is just gaining everywhere he needs to gain and holding on. Uh, to what he already had, where that was already impressive. So it's as it becomes more and more a numbers game, you see where there are fewer and fewer opportunities for Biden and the Democrats, and where Trump and the Trump, at least Trump, maybe not always the Republicans, are more and more on the front foot. I mean, if you go back to I think of 2008, Obama, the Democrats, they had all the money, they had all the issues in their favor, they had all the media coverage, they had all the, the charismatic candidate. And they were on the front once once he and Hillary Clinton had sorted out that then their side of things. He, he and his campaign were on the front foot. They were deciding where, you know, where the campaign would be fought and on what issues and in what way. Whereas McCain and the Republicans were on, def on defense the whole time on the back foot, you know, fighting over over smaller and smaller territory, fewer and fewer resources. Right. Um, and that's just the way some elections go when there's a, you know, a, I'm a little nervous to say a tipping point, but when you reach, you reach a point where uh, it is just the the momentum in one direction is so much, um, and it's often because of shifts in these in, in, very, in one or more demographic groups. Obviously, in 2008, we already discussed the fact that the youth vote was coming out massively Absolutely. and overwhelmingly from all these sorts of things. So. We maybe we're not there yet with Trump v. Biden, but if we're not, you can see it in the distance. I think you know closer than the horizon. Again, you know, sales can be reset, and you know things things can change. But boy, something has to change pretty big 
pretty major. It has to be a pretty pivotal, pivotal change um, for enough people to get returned off Trump, uh, to get de-enthused, and for enough people to say, yeah, you know, Biden's not everything we wanted. He may be senile. Um, you know, the country may be a mess, but boy, it would be even better if Donald, Tr even worse if Donald Trump was back in, in power. You know, it's a tough, it's a tough sell. It's not a very positive argument to make. Um, but, you know, 11 months to go. Let's see. <laughs> I'd say the least. Uh, now, before we move on, and then we'll get actually, which is going back to some stuff you're mentioning about Trump and the minority vote. But uh, before we uh, move on, there is a question. Do you think that if Trump is convicted of anything before the election, that is likely, given what we've seen thus far in public uh, opinion data, to in any serious way cripple him headed into November of 2024? Do you think it's likely to uh, flip the script in favor of Biden? That clearly is what the Democrats are hoping for. But just looking at the numbers, uh, do you think that is probable? Uh, no, I think actually um, it would be good news for Trump if he was convicted. Um, I think he may not get that good news because I think <laughs> certainly some and maybe all of these four or five um, cases that are, appear to be moving forward bizarrely uh, are going to be settled i mean they won't reach the trial stage before uh -huh. the election and if any of them do i don't think they'll be resolved uh, by the time of the election um, and of course even if he was convicted there are going to be appeals mm -hmm. um so if even if trump lost the election um i don't think he would he would be in any kind of true jeopardy for some time afterwards but to take your question you know and, and assume that the calendar is different to what i've suggested the legal calendar and some one or more of these reached its um, end before November 2024, and he was convicted, and he was and he lost an appeal, didn't appeal, was sent to jail. Um, I think he does even better um, than otherwise. And I, and I base that on two things. One, we've seen that any indictment, any prosecution, any mug, you know, everything that's gone on, each one was quote unquote worse than the one the previous um, uh, effort on the part of the the FBI and the Justice Department, et cetera, um, and the respective state attorneys general, attorneys general um, each one has helped him. That's acro across the board in all the polling. But we've been asking for about three months now, specific those specific questions, you know, are you more likely, more or less likely or the same in terms of your intention to vote for or against Donald Trump in 2024 based on him being indicted, you know, based on being prosecuted, based on him being convicted? And most people, there's no change, but the net is significant in his favor, right? So, and, and you know, maybe this is another close election like 16 and 20. It may not be, but if it is, then at the margin is where these things are won. And the net plus for, for Trump is significant enough. Uh, so, no, I mean, it's that his, his opposition, that is the political system, the political establishment, the ruling political class just keeps doubling down on failure as they do in foreign policy as they do in domestic policy they're doubling down in this because they can't they can't they i think one some of them are just recognize they're out of options they can't do anything policy-wise to discredit him or to improve their position so it's how do we have to eliminate him so we just have to keep doing the same thing um just praying if well then i'm probably not generally the types to pray but praying that it works and then i think some of them simply believe it, do believe it will work. They do believe that the stupid, ignorant, deplorable, unwashed American public will finally get it, 
right? When they see him in in, in an orange jumpsuit, um, you know, they see him sort of, you know, on the side of the road picking up litter or, you know, they see him behind bars or whatever it is, they will get it and they'll decide, you know, three days before the election that, oh, my God, we just can't have this guy. You know, we can't have peace and prosperity again. It's too, too much for this country to bear. Let's continue with, uh, you know, economic recession and uh, war abroad. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's what they hope. And some of them, that's what they all hope. And that's what some of them believe will actually happen. It's quite remarkable, but that's what they think. And I'll just say, even though I'm not a lawyer, but I've been following these cases like a hawk, I, I think it's better odds than even that Trump does not wind up getting uh, a trial before Election Day in any of these cases. Uh, but if there was a trial, it would be the one in D.C. I think the charges in New York will probably get dropped uh, at some point before they they would go to actually go to a courtroom. Uh, and I, I think that even then, the D.C. stuff will be held up on appeal for so long that he probably would parlay to his advantage. Uh, there's no way that Georgia thing goes to trial for the election. I think that the charges in Florida are being kicked into the long grass as we speak. So it's it's uh, it's a unique state of affairs because there's so much stuff going on. But the only real trial I, I think that stands a good chance of happening for not a good chance, but better than the others of happening for the election is the one in D.C. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I think he'll probably be able to get that one delayed uh, considerably, uh, and who knows, maybe the Supreme Court will even uh, invalidate some of the charges, given how other cases which are relevant to the charges. Uh, pressed against Trump are progressing. Uh, who knows what precedent might be set there. So that's the, the situation there from my point of view. Uh, anyway, now talking about some numbers before we get to uh, the main event, so to speak, uh, the, these numbers are from an Echelon Insights poll, which shows Trump up by one point over Biden. Uh, the poll was done between the 14th and the 17th of this month. Uh, who is trusted more to handle inflation? Trump over Biden by 12 points. Jobs in the economy, Trump over Biden by 10 points. Immigration, Trump over Biden by 10 points. Crime, Trump over Biden by 10 points. Social Security, Biden has a two-point edge on Trump. Education, Biden has a four-point edge on Trump. Medicare, Biden has a five-point edge on Trump. Obviously, these last three things are not of the importance of the first four in the minds of most voters. So that, I think, is a good segue into uh, the article that was published about a poll you did. The This article was run on the 8th of November at The Express, uh, written by David Maddox. The title is, Donald Trump has been turned into a hero for American minorities after court case, hero put in quotations. Uh, a leading pollster has said Donald Trump is winning support where no Republican has won before because of the, quote, weaponization, end quote, of the legal system. The article begins, the trials of Donald Trump are boosting his campaign to return to the White House because, quote, working class, minority, ethnic, end quote, voters now see the former president as one of their own, a leading pollster has claimed. Patrick Basham of the Democracy, Patrick Basham of the Washington, D.C. based Democracy Institute said that the belief a majority of Americans believe the system is rigged has fueled the conclusion among many voters in the U.S. that the legal cases against Trump 
quote, are political, end quote. It comes just after Trump appeared in a court in New York to give evidence in a civil fraud case, which has been brought against him earlier this week. Mr. Basham pointed to findings from the Democracy Institute poll for the Daily Express U.S., which revealed that increasingly Americans are on the former president's side. In particular, 25% of the 1,500 likely voters polled said they were more inclined to vote for him because of the court cases compared to 14% less likely. Very fascinating there. Now I'm done reading from the article. I will get to uh, the numbers. Uh, 58% of voters say there is a witch hunt against Trump, whereas only 34% of voters say there is not. 56% of voters say that economic and political systems are rigged in favor of the rich and powerful, whereas 37% of voters disagree. And the likelihood of voting for Trump due to indictments, 25% more likely, 14% less likely, 61% no change. That is perhaps the most surprising number when almost two-thirds of the electorate say there's no change. Uh, so uh, obviously this stuff is not working out. And as you mentioned to me before, and as you mentioned in the article, uh, working class minority voters are the ones who are fueling the more likely segment of the electorate, which is a quarter of it, and that's no uh, nothing to sneeze at. Uh, the 14% less likely, I would assume, are mostly educated whites. Uh, and uh, the 61% say would be, I would say, diverse cross-section of society. Uh, so it's really interesting how this is functioning, because it seems to me that uh, Trump is gaining support from people who the Republicans definitely would not expect to vote for them, uh, whereas they are losing support from their traditional base, educated whites. Uh, but across the board, or 61%, almost two-thirds of the board, uh, the indictments haven't changed anything. So uh, really, it, it looks pretty placid, but there certainly is some action along the edges, so to speak. Patrick, anything to say about what I've brought up? Yeah, well, see, we were talking earlier about, asking me earlier, and I was going on about the um, the questions we ask and, and some of the, why we ask some of these questions. You see, a lot of people are asking voters um, whether it will make a difference or not and are puzzled by the results because they go at it with a sort of a conventional wisdom headspace. And how can this not make a difference to most people and how in net terms can it actually help Trump? Which is why we ask questions, so big picture questions such as, do you think the system is rigged, right? Not asking about Donald Trump, but just you, when you look at politics, when you look at it, the, the economy, do you think the system's rigged? And it's what, you know, what do people think? And of course, when you, when you discover that most people think it is, then the answer to the question about Trump and does it affect your vote makes more sense, doesn't it? I mean, it may, you know, it may not need that for it to make sense to you, but it may, may be helpful. Because if you think, as I was talking about, you're young black man, but it's not just young black men. If most American voters think the system's rigged, then the notion that it's been rigged and gamed against Trump as the individual is not something that they're going to just dismiss out of hand. Because they believe that individuals are targeted. They believe the system is designed to keep some people down, some people out, and to, and to add, um, advantage others in their, in their place. So it becomes something that is something they can consider. They, their minds are open to it, right? Whereas if 95% of the population thought the system was fair, and everybody got their, their, their due, 
then they then a good chunk are going to be far less likely, perhaps not likely at all, to consider that Trump or anybody else who's prominent and wealthy um, is being targeted. Right. So this is, you know, this is all part, I say, part of the art of, of, of putting the, the poll together. Um, and it tells us a great deal. Uh, you know, Americans are Americans have been dissatisfied for a long time, particularly on economics. Right. Not just on economics, but on economics and, and issues of, of war and peace, and America's involvement overseas. But it's only relatively recently that. Americans have come to believe it's not as a question merely of the wrong people in office for a short period of time who have made poorest decisions, mistakes, um, maybe well-intentioned errors in domestic and foreign policy um, on, on sort of solo projects. And, and we, we suffer, we have suffered or do suffer from that. They believe that's all of that, but they now believe that the problem is a systemic problem. It's not as simple as an isolated mistake here and there with serious, perhaps costly, perhaps even tragic consequences. The system is, is wrong. The system is malfunctioning. There's something going on here. And it's not as simple as too many incompetent people, although they do believe that Washington is you know, flooded with them. They believe the system is actually designed now to not work for most Americans, because it's designed to ensure that it works for a minority of Americans exceedingly well, which, you know, which they believe it does. Right. So and this is something that this isn't, you know, this this that that notion, if I'd said this to you 20, 30, 40 years ago, you'd have assumed I was talking about people, ordinary Americans on the left. Mm -hmm. Right. Now we're talking about people across the board, left and right, which, of course, is why Kennedy um, has a chance of making a difference in this election and why he was such a threat to Biden, the Democratic uh, primary process, uh, which meant, of course, the Democrats couldn't allow that to continue. And mm -hmm. he had to, you know, he read the writing on the wall and realized he had to go elsewhere if he was going to, you know, continue to make a difference. So, and this is something that Trump tapped him to, in, remember, in 2016, Trump won narrowly for a number of reasons, one of which is he won a significant slice of Bernie Sanders' vote. People didn't understand why. In 2020, he still won, you know, Sanders-type voters. Um, and in 2024, he's, we'll see what he does with the Kennedy vote, vice versa. But he's going to get populist voters from all over. And he's going to do that because the one thing that the populist left has in common with the populist right is they believe the system is rigged. They believe it's a systemic problem. It can't be changed just by changing the president and changing a few cabinet secretaries and issuing a few executive orders, changing a couple of regulations and, and, and tweaking the tax policy. Right. The, the, the system needs fundamental change. Now, those on the far left have a very different notion of it from what a lot of uh, Trump supporters do in terms of uh, all of the prescriptive changes that need to take place. But it's a recognition that they share that the, the problem is systemic, right? And so all, all of the lawfare, all of the weaponization of politics and the judicial system against the likes of Trump just reinforces that notion and educates some people about it for the first time, particularly younger people. So, you know, you have so you know, Trump, the master marketer, he, he has a mugshot that's an iconic mugshot, right? 
is a, is a mugshot that's appear that's, that's now being sold as merchandise, right? Um, in inner city areas, in very blue cities in America, you have young black males who are painting the mugshot on the wall, on walls, you know, sort of graffiti art, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this is this is unprecedented and unparalleled, mm -hmm. but this is what happens um, when the the ruling elite overreach, and because they are so isolated, not just into not just intellectually and ideologically, but they're so isolated socially and culturally, they they not only work in such a bubble, but they live their lives in such a bubble that they have no notion of what so many of the people they disparage and ignore are thinking and feeling. They also have no knowledge of what they will, what those folks will do as a consequence and are doing as a consequence of sort of reaching their, their, the end of their tolerance and their patience uh, with, with the ruling class, right? So if trends continue, there are going to be, there's going to be a large su surprise to, to, to some in the establishment, but there are going to be a number of sort of, I say, micro shocks uh, where some of the results congressionally uh senatorial level and presidentially some of the results are going to be absolutely striking because they're going to be seen to have come out of left field they haven't um some have been brewing we've been brewing for months others for years some even longer than that uh, but this is where we are this is where you what's what you get to when the system is viewed as suspect and of course this is why we're getting contemporaneously um, such, result, such results we've had recently, to some extent in New Zealand, but very much so more recently in the likes of Argentina and the Netherlands. It's something else. It really is. Uh, I can't say I'm surprised by it, but uh, I am a little surprised by where it's showing up, particularly segments of the electorate that I would never have thought would support Republicans to any serious extent. Uh, now, some might see, oh, that's obviously the black vote, but talking about the Hispanic vote, uh, here in Florida, it went pretty massively for the GOP in 2022, uh, and Trump did very well with it in 2020, not in 2016. Uh, but well, in 2016, he didn't do all that badly, not nearly what some people thought he would do. So at least in Florida, you see increased uh, increase levels of support for Republicans among Hispanics. But Florida, as I always tell people, and they very often mistakenly believe uh, something about the state, which is what I'm about to address, it's not a microcosm of America. It, no. it isn't. Uh, it, it is its own thing. It's sui generis. There is nothing else like it. And it is constantly changing. Now it's changing in a rightward direction in terms of the electorate because of who's moving here. Uh, and uh, some lefties here are also moving out. Uh, so it's really uh, fascinating stuff. But uh, in the Hispanic vote nationally, one certainly sees more and more support for Trump, and uh, who knows where that will wind up. But it definitely is interesting. Now, Patrick, one thing that has to be brought up uh, is this idea that you know the Democrats say they're standing up for minority interests against Republican racism. And at the uh, focal point of this racism is, of course, via their argument, Donald Trump. Uh, However, if there are enough minorities who support Trump, whether it be a majority of Hispanics, which I, I don't think is going to happen, but it certainly is possible, uh, or you know something like something crazy like thirty percent of blacks, uh, do, do you think that the Democrats might stop talking about 
uh, minority interests so much if a lot of the minorities are slipping away from them? Uh, or do you think that they'll double down on it to keep the minorities they have? Uh, I do think at some point, if this continues, if it gets to the point that it's something I, I, you know, I always say something I never thought was possible, but I never thought I'd seen an NBC poll that younger voters support Trump over Biden. So mm. just because I don't think something's possible doesn't mean it isn't going to happen. I'll just throw that out there. Uh, but uh, if it did come, say that the Republicans were pulling 40% of the black vote and like 60% of the Hispanic vote, uh, and if that came within the next 10 years, 10 to 15 years, do you think that at that stage, uh, the Democrats might just uh, do a mask off moment and stop talking about minority interests because this is you know, the core of their their uh, mm. their appeal that they support people who the Republicans uh, oppose, admonish, yeah. whatever. Uh, and uh, at that point, the Democrats become very nakedly basically uh, an intellectual or pseudo intellectual elite white uh, so-called progressive institution, uh, which yeah. arguably be having its own form of white supremacy, but trying to force them, um, its unpopular ideas on an increasingly diverse electorate that wants uh, less and less to do with it. Uh, so what do you think about this state of affairs or this potential state of affairs? I, I mean, I think there's the potential for going those kinds of results over the next couple of elections. It's, it's, it's possible, if, even if not probable. Um, but the, in the short term, I think the Democrats will double down. They'll do more of the same. They'll assume that um, it will change. They'll assume it's temporary insanity on the part of these voters. Um, and as they start to learn that it isn't, um, I think what they'll do is th they won't throw out the identity politics. Uh, they will just uh, well, expand it, reinforce it. So because they've convinced themselves that some of these minority groups, I'm not just talking racial and ethnic, but also sort of, I might say, cultural lifestyle wise, are much larger than they actually are, mm -hmm. they will decide that they can potentially replace this loss amongst uh, blacks and Hispanics with um, transgender, you know, gay, lesbian, the whole rainbow coalition. Um, uh, and they will, they will determine, they will conclude that they can, um, do even better with the Muslim vote, uh, and you know they can also expand. You see, I think what you'll see. I mean, some people, cynics, would say it's already been it's been happening for a while. But I think what you would see is a more overt effort to bring more Muslim immigrants absolutely disproportionately uh, where it's been not exclusive by any sense, but heavily, obviously, on the Hispanic side. And um, I think you you know they'll decide that they can replace native black voters with immigrant black voters so there'll be a bigger there'll be a big push on african voters which i i think actually would be a mistake um electorally for them but there you go um, because one of the things that our leaders are so ignorant of not only is why half the country um has and continues to support donald trump but what the rest of the world thinks of donald trump right so because our leaders are, are europhiles right mm -hmm. Uh, not just Democrats, mainly Democrats, for a long time, they thought the only thing wrong with America is it's not enough like Europe, right? Um, well, Europe and Canada, their notion of Canada, their notion of Western Europe, not, sorry, not Eastern Europe, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, we know they're all, they're all Nazis, well, except for one country. Well, and it's not uh, cultural, <laughs> it's not being a cultural Europhile in that they like, uh, you know, the, the people's history, heritage, and culture of Europe, oh, no, no, about no, political no. Europhile. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and so we need to import as much sort of EU-ness as mm -hmm. possible, 
and replace what you know American uh, Americanness with EU ness, and we'd all be better off. And so, because of that, they view the rest of the world as Europe, Western Europe, or most well these days as the EU, with the UK no longer um, there. So the the EU is as Western Europe, and the Western Europe is the world. So the opinions of their peers, and you know that is just poli policymakers, um, big business corporate types, the media in EU countries and, and, and broadly uh, is, is what they view of as, a, as opinion. And that opinion has been consistently anti-Trump. There's no question about that. But of course, in Eastern Europe and in Africa and in much of Asia and in parts of Latin America, Trump has not been despised. In fact, in some countries, in some, con some continents, he actually was and continues to be quite well liked. I mean, the, 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 the Gulf states, the Middle East, they don't have a problem with Trump. <laughs> they take Trump over Biden all day long, um, including on the issue of Palestine and Gaza Absolutely. and all the rest of it. Right. So these are all inconvenient truths. Um, you know, it's just it's, it's, it's just how it is, because um, our, our leaders, our ruling class are so isolated and they just they just don't know. Um, so, you know, this is this is where we are. I mean, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. But I think that they are going to. Um, they're going to try to squeeze, well, squeeze out. They're going to say expand the list of minorities by their definition that are eligible to vote, and they're going um, to um, try to manufacture uh, as much new resentment and rekindle old resentments as possible because that is what they believe has worked for them um, to this point. And they'll say, okay, the Hispanics are, as some of us predicted. 20 years ago, the Hispanic Americans are going down the same path that the Italians went down politically, the same path that the Irish went down politically. And it's okay. Those got those those people on the right who said that would happen to Hispanic voters. Okay, we'll give them that one. We were wrong about that. We didn't import a permanent electoral majority, just a temporary one, a uh, short-term one. So we need to do, you know, we need to uh, figure out how to do the arithmetic again. Um, in a different way, and you know, this is uh, this is the, uh, the sort of the bed they've they've made for themselves. Um, you know, as, as, as I throw in all my metaphors, perhaps of a mixture, these are these are their uh, electoral chickens coming home to roost, perhaps. Mm -hmm. For certain. You know, it's interesting talking about the Muslim vote because uh, Biden is doing quite terribly with it now. He won it overwhelmingly, but at this point, he's uh, had a lot of support uh, ooze out of it uh, because uh, they believe he's not been pro-Palestine enough. Uh, and uh, he also is losing support among Arabs, moreover, although it should be noted that Arabs traditionally in America have been a majority Christian group. Uh, they still are, but there's obviously more and more Muslims among them. I presume that what the Democrats might do is, uh, oh, after Biden's presidency ends, do a reset on the Israel issue and become uh, hardcore pro-Palestine and try to import as many pro-Palestinian Muslims as possible, particularly from the lowest ranks of Islamic societies. We're not talking about aristocrats from the Gulf states here. Uh, we're talking about 
people who are very susceptible to unfortunate ideas. Perhaps they live in a slum in Western Europe. Uh, and uh, they, they uh, even though they have legal residence or even citizenship in a Western European country, they don't feel part of it and they're perpetually aggrieved. And I can certainly see the Democrats saying, hey, bring those people over here because they'll vote for us and they can continue the uh, anti-traditional America thing that certain other groups who are already here are abandoning. Uh, so it's really uh, interesting how the Democrats might do X, Y, or Z with the Muslim vote. Of course, they could also get Muslims directly from Muslim lands, particularly from the lowest sector of society in these lands. Um, the Democrats are already talking about importing Palestinians. Uh, so <laughs> Gazans in particular. Uh, and that, for those who don't know, Gazans are, in terms of the social pecking order of, of the Middle East, they are unambiguously at the bottom of it. Yes. Among the majority Muslim population in the Middle East, we're not just talking about how Israeli Jews perceive them. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's it's really something else. But I think the Democrats definitely will be looking at the Muslim vote as time goes on. And I do think the writing's on the wall that even though now they have under Biden a sort of grin and bear pro-Israel perspective uh, that, like I said, the writing's on the wall. Uh, you can see the clock running out on it. And that perspective, I doubt, will be here in five years' time. Anything to say about what I brought up, Patrick? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the Democrats, it's sort of, it's still, the, the Israel policy is still the sort of old establishment um still you know still that it's still that playbook right where the the, the juice the intellectual and using the term very loosely the intellectual energy and juice mm -hmm. political momentum electoral momentum and on the democratic side mm -hmm. has for some time has been on this quote-unquote progressive left um which is you know just not um aligned with that view so right. uh, you know and the, and the democrats so you could say well naturally they would veer start to veer away from that uh, for demographic electoral based electoral reasons. But of course, what the Democrats will be encouraged by, I mean, I think it's a mistake in broad terms, but you can understand it. They'll be encouraged by the fact that there have been all these protests, pro-Palestinian protests in America, um, as, a, as across much of the West, with very large numbers of um, participants, disparate, you know, overwhelmingly younger people. Um, and, uh, you know, the polls show that younger voters, younger Democrats, um, you know, have a very different view of Israel than their parents or grandparents did, mm -hmm. uh, and a very different view of this whole um, dynamic and division in that part of the Middle East, right? So um, they will say, well, we can get the youth vote vote back by being, by turning against Israel mm -hmm. and being, um, you know, pro-Muslim. But as you say, I mean, they sort of misinterpret, they, they don't, again, it's, they don't understand most of what they talk about in foreign policy terms. As you say, the 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 the, the Palestinians, the Gazans in particular, if this is India, we'd be talking about the sort of lowest caste, right? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, rightly or wrongly, that's just that's just how it has been and how they are viewed within their own pan-Arab society and culture. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's that's an our, that's an our definition of our categorization. That's just you know, that's just reading, <laughs> that's just saying what is said, what is done, what is acted upon there. Um, but, you know, you can always rely on, I, I would say you can rely on most of the foreign policy establishment in America to get it wrong most of the time. You can certainly rely on the modern democratic uh, components of that to get it wrong most of the time. And of course, on Israel-Gaza, the Biden, you know, he, he thought that the Ukraine war was going to help him, going to achieve these larger geopolitical go, uh, goals. But he thought that that would save him politically. He'd be the statesman. He'd he'd take on Putin. He'd beat Putin and all the rest. Of it. Now, of course, as you and I and others, some others 
predicted early on wasn't going to happen. It's been a complete disaster, mm-hmm. and they're stuck. So then, a, the the uh, the Palestinians attack Israel. Well, he can defend Israel, and he can be the Middle East statesman and bring peace back. Well, there was peace um, until he was president, so I guess he'd be bringing it back to Trump time. But that's yeah. better than nothing. And of course, he's unable to do that. He can't even get any hostages back. Uh, and he finds himself with this difficult partisan electoral problem of um, his party being split because you've got older established Democrats saying, you know, we got to stay away from these Palestinians and um, there's just trouble in all senses. And then you have young Democrats and left-wing Democrats and Muslim Democratic politicians saying, Israel, well, we don't really care, do we? We shouldn't. And those Palestinians, well, they may have gone over the top, but I mean, you can heart's in the right place. So, uh, you know, what does he do? And it's so, you know, every every time they think there's a foreign policy opportunity, they either blow it or they wrap their arms around it, not recognizing that it's, you know, a poison chalice, right? They're basically sort of, ju- well, they've jumped on the hand grenade not to protect others, but they haven't recognized it's a hand grenade. Right. They, they think they think it's a lifeline and it's actually a hang, a hang grenade, I think, is, is what ha- what's happened over the Israel Gaza issue. And yeah, so some Jews in America are belatedly question, you know, reevaluating this. So this point has been largely blind loyalty to the Democrats. And then you've got Muslim Americans, some who are saying this isn't the party that we thought it was. These guys are as bad on Israel as the Republicans. Um, so. Again, you see that coalition fraying um, and, you know, the, the Arab American population in Michigan, especially mm-hmm. in the Detroit area, as you say, it's not all yeah. Muslim, but Muslim Arabs in that part of the country, part of that state, are, are play a large role. And if, if, is Michigan going to be a, a close for the third time in a row? And it's not a question of, well, do they vote for Donald Trump, who's saying the things that they don't like? Um on the issue largely um mm. or i think more likely is they just don't vote but uh-huh. don't vote for president anyway they'll support a local congressional or senatorial candidate who's more to their liking on the middle east but they just vote can't bring themselves to vote for biden again um and so you can see how these how in, in different ways and to different degrees um this is going to bite biden and the democrats and um, you could say, well, it's bad luck. However, you know, if you don't give the Iranians all of that, uh, all of that money, or you know, if you don't pay pay for hostages, you don't give them all of that money back. You don't sign bad deals. Um, these guys in Palestine don't have quite as much money to, you know, to uh, send rockets and uh, hang gliders to Israel, do they? I mean, that's just the reality of it. So. And, you know, it's something because obviously, as the Wall Street Journal revealed, the whole uh, October 7th attack was orchestrated by Iran. Uh, And that's no surprise to me because, as I have pointed out, however controversially on social media, the average IQ in Gaza is 68. uh, And the Iranians are considerably more intelligent than that. uh, So that they would do this whole thing and basically use the Gazans as their puppet is uh, unsurprising from an intelligence quotient point of view. Uh, but it's also unsurprising from the perspective of the sociology of the Middle East, wherein the Gazans are viewed as basically, uh, you know, uh, the lowest strata of 
society and uh, they are used by others in that vein and certainly that's what iran was doing they were using mm -hmm. the gazans against their enemy the israelis and they would very much like to by the way the iranians do something similar to the saudis so this is not something limited to to israel this is iran uh really uh provoking as many people as possible in the region perhaps because the uh, regime in iran which is very unpopular with its uh, own people or with what it claims are its own people, uh, they don't know how long they'll be around for. So they might be just be throwing whatever at the wall to see what sticks. Uh, and, uh, you know, who knows? Uh, so anyhow, uh, th th that's my take there. Now, uh, the second to last item tonight, Patrick, is a bit of surprise that some Westerners have when it comes to the Muslim vote. Margaret Thatcher thought that increased Islamic immigration to Britain would mean increased support for the Tories uh, because uh, she believed they had traditional family values and respect for authority. And she naturally believed that this would make the Labour Party completely repellent to Muslim voters. Uh, and at the time, uh, most British Jews tended to support Labour. Well, <laughs> as uh, things have turned out over about 30 years' time, uh, the, the Jewish vote is overwhelmingly conservative in the UK. Uh, and uh, the Muslim vote is basically more labor-oriented than it ever has been. Uh, so what, uh, obviously the, the Jewish vote in the UK went conservative for reasons that are unrelated to the, well, I guess they could be related because more uh, British Jews felt that there was a jihadi threat and they didn't want to support the party that was uh, seen as supporting the jihadis but uh anyhow looking just at the at the muslims uh what happened in britain is very instructive because uh even though uh, most muslims the overall majority come from a very traditional background uh which you think would be an open door to right-wing politics whatever country they immigrate to they tend to support the left in the west quite reactionarily uh and uh you know that's the case in throughout all of Europe, and uh, it's still the case in the U.S., even though Muslims are disenchanted with Biden. Uh, why do you think hmm. that Muslims who would seem to have right-wing values wind up becoming very loyal supporters of the left once they immigrate to a Western country? Uh, I mean, it's, it's multifaceted, the answer, Joseph. I, I mean, I think the, the most striking elements, it, it's partly about them and it's partly about us, or rather how we deal with them. Um, I think Thatcher's fundamental error, I mean, it's sort of well-intentioned and you can understand where she was coming from, what she was hoping for. And of course it demonstrated, if I can say one, you know, one point here regarding her outlook is that, mm -hmm. you know, she was in many ways pro-migration and yeah. pro-minority. Um, and she believed that she had recognized an affinity mm -hmm. amongst Muslims uh, for what she would view as some of the better elements of the British society and British way of life. Now she miscalculated uh, quite considerably. And I think part of a central part of her miscalculation is that she misunderstood uh, Muslims cultures uh, preference, putting it gently for order and authority. She did, she, she, she misinterpreted that, misidentified that as a, um, a, a sympathy for and an agreement with the basic notions of a sort of free society, because that that belief in order and authority, mm -hmm. and um, a structure, family structure, etc., is is not it's not necessarily mutually exclusive from, but it is not the same as a belief in personal liberty, individual ah. freedom, choice, and all these other things. Right. So there's that 
which meant that Muslims came, most of them, with that mind, with a mindset that was of another time, sort of quite anachronistic. By that we're talking, you know, seventies, eighties, nineties, etc. Quite anachronistic, um, and they also. I mean, it depends in part what happens on where you know which part of the Muslim world Absolutely. folks are coming from. Mm -hmm. uh, within a particular country, you know, what strata are we talking about? Educated, less educated? We're we talking about mainly young men. Are we talking about families? All these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And cut a long story short, the Brits, like many other Western countries, especially in Europe, um, you know, got that wrong. Either didn't care, or or, or sort of encouraged, um, you might say, the less less desirable elements, and, and didn't encourage or discourage more desirable elements um, in. So, so there's that. And then, you know, in terms of what we did to them or what we what we didn't do is that Brits, the British governments, respective governments for some time have done what the Canadian government has done for a long time, which is to say, you don't have to adapt to us. We mm -hmm. welcome you and you just carry on as if you are still in Karachi or you're still in Cairo or you're still in Sudan or whatever it might be. Right. And we're going to help you be you. You just happen to be here with all the rights and privileges and, and, and relative wealth and security um, and legal protection that you lacked at home. And so whether it's schooling, whether it's family relations, et cetera, et cetera, um, encouraging them, allowing them to have their own you know, parliaments and political, not just representation within the larger polity, uh, but sort of self-governing to an extent that you know there's sort of a separateness that develops um so there's this the the abuse of a multicultural multiculturalism and the lack of recognition that there are huge downsides to a truly multicultural society um was lost on so many on the right and the left um in 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 the west and so it's, it's something that america had until fairly recently largely escaped Right. One of the advantages of the melting pot You know, in Canada, you know, kids are taught. Thank God you don't live in America with that horrible melting pot. Everyone's made to be the same. We're here. You can be yourself. You can be as Ukrainian or as Pakistani or as whatever. You can't be very British or Australian, but that's a whole other thing. But, uh, you know, so, you know, and it's the same thing. It became the same thing in, in, the, U, in the UK. And so you have particularly in northern England, but, you know, there are, there are, there are cities and towns. Uh, prominent places like Bradford and, you know, real historical working class industrial towns where the majority Muslim, the politicians are naturally therefore Muslim, uh, the school, you know, it's, 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 if you're there, you really could think that you were very, very far away from the United Kingdom, right? Certainly. And you can say, well, that's great. But there are consequences to that. There are social, cultural consequences, political consequences, and all the rest of it. And so, you know, the folks that you've imported and those that have born, been born, they're born British and educated there, it's been such a, um, a rapid evolution within mm. that, uh, not within that culture, but that, in terms of how that culture has grown within the larger culture, that when you have these anti-Israeli, pro-Palestinian marches and demonstrations where it's not simply people saying you know i care about palestinians but the things that are said and the posters that are that are displayed the chants that, that are led um are such 
it's the can't simply be the temporary importation of a lot of radicals from the Middle East. You're talking about a lot of recent immigrants, most of them legal, and those who have grown up in British society who are quite comfortable, enthusiastic about openly, publicly saying what they think about Israel and about Jewish people and how and what they think of what happened on October 7th. Right. And all of this. Um, and he say it's I mean, the specifics aren't necessarily super predictable, but we are learning that you know, retrospectively, some of these things should have been right. It, it matters. It doesn't it not only matters who immigrate, who um, emigrates to your country, but it matters what you do with them when they're here. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if I can put it very crudely, I mean, that's sure. just that's just just a fact. Um, and wh- whether you lose out as the host country by keeping people down and making allowing them only to work in certain occupations or not letting them vote or whatever it might be, um, there are downsides to the host country, but there are also different downsides to the host country mm-hmm. if you are not vetting who's coming in and you're not insisting that they become an actual functioning part of the fabric um, and the most importantly, the, the values of the host country. And we you know, obviously we see it in Sweden, we see it in the UK, we see it in France, Australia, New Zealand now. Um, and, and Canada is a good example and increasingly in America. So, you know, Thatcher got that wrong. Um, I think that's just, that's just a fact. Uh, and the Israel Gaza issue has really brought to the fore something that, I mean, closer observers like ourselves have been aware of in terms of public opinion and sentiment and the, the dangers, so is it that the, so is it the trouble that was percolating and that some more radical observers have been brave enough, foolhardy enough to say publicly and suffer immediately the consequences of with cancel culture and all the rest of it, sometimes more serious actual sort of legal consequences. Um, but I think a lot of ordinary fair-minded people who don't pay attention to these things have really been shocked. They had no idea. They knew that they turn on the news for the last 20 years and there'd be, you know, street marches in some Middle Eastern country uh, denouncing America and burning the, the flag and saying bad things about this person or that group. But the notion that that's actually happening in their country and outside the White House and it was it's not only going on, but sort of apparently going on without any effort to stop it in, in, you know, in any sense. Not talking about freedom of speech here, but just in terms of any potential threat or, or any, you know, the threats that are being issued by the demonstrators and all the rest of it. We have this, you know, this sort of surreal situation uh, in the Washington, D.C. area where you had the demonstrators, you know, at the gates of the White House calling for Biden's death, demanding that he, uh, you know, be overthrown, um, flying the Palestinian flag. It was interesting if you fly a foreign country's flag um, <laughs> at the seat of power in uh in another country, but uh-huh. again, a conversation for another day. So all this is going on. And earlier, some of the demonstrators ransacked a nearby McDonald's. And the only prosecutions to this point of anyone involved in this whole thing um, is over the disturbance at the, at the McDonald's, uh, <laughs> which tells you a great deal about a lot of things in America right now. Uh, but yeah, yeah, so ordinary people are saying, I don't understand this. You know, I just don't get it. I mean, like, it's like, where did these, where do these people come from? And of course, 
again, it would be wrong to say, well, it's those new, those horrible new immigrants with their horrible ideas, because most, say, most of the people involved in these demonstrations, and these protests, they're either immigrants who've been here a while or they are native born Americans, Swedes, Brits, whatever, who have grown up, been encouraged and allowed to grow up in this um, atmosphere of, of hatred and propaganda and misinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, boy, this is what you get as an out- this is the outcome, the, the predictable expected outcome. Absolutely. And I will just say before we move on to the last point, in Denmark, there is definitely resistance to what's going on. Uh, Just reading from the New York Times very briefly, Denmark aims a wrecking ball at, quote, non-Western and, quote, neighborhoods. A government program is using demolition and relocation to remake neighborhoods with immigrants, poverty or crime. And I'll stop reading there, but uh, this was published last month. Uh, And basically uh, what it means is that the government in Copenhagen has decided that they're not going to have these uh, parallel societies within their society. So they are trying to prevent neighborhoods from becoming a parallel society by relocating people within neighborhoods that would create a uh, counter-cultural force to uh, the culture of Denmark. Uh, So it's a very good move. Uh, Obviously, you know, people in the U.S. are on the left and say they love the Scandinavian countries, they love the North model. If they saw this going on in Denmark, they would, you know, flip their lid. But it goes to show two things. Number one, that even in Scandinavia and now in Holland, uh, there are uh, there is a serious rise of resistance towards these uh, very destructive left-wing policies that a lot of American lefties love for whatever reason. Uh, and number two, it also shows that a lot of people in the U.S., when they talk about Europe this, Europe that, uh, they don't necessarily see all of Europe. They see a side of it that they want to see. They see the often educated, uh, pretentious, uh, liberal, pseudo-liberal, pseudo-progressive, progressive, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, quasi-intellectual elite in certain large cities, But if they were to actually meet Europeans from the countryside or from smaller cities or from many suburbs, they would find people they despise just as much as Americans in these places I've mentioned. So, uh, yeah, two things that definitely brought up about Europhilia among the uh, among the American left. And I did uh, stress the point before that it's political Europhilia, not cultural Europhilia. And this obviously uh, goes into into that. Anyway, Patrick, for the last point. Uh, there, uh, there is, uh, as you well know, Larry Sabato at the University of Virginia, uh, and he has been perhaps our country's foremost, uh, uh, election season pundit for some time. He does the crystal ball at the Center for Politics. Uh, And yet over the last few years, he has become very openly partisan Mm. uh, in his public statements. And, you know, he started out as a Democratic activist, so this is no surprise that he would hold these views. But traditionally, he would uh, conserve these views for private, uh, you know, uh, situations and not make it a part of his public persona because, you know, traditionally it would mean that people would say, well, this guy's more of a partisan pundit than an apolitical, quote, quote a political analyst. Uh, but uh, now he obviously sees no problem with merging his partisan uh, opinions and his political uh, prognostications in public. Uh, it, it, it's something because it tells us about the era we're in, wherein. Uh, apolitical stuff in the media 
really either no longer exists or it's on its last legs, even in the establishment. I'm not talking about, you know, partisan media sources that sprung up as an alternative to the establishment, but within the established media, uh, there is less and less pretense of objectivity. Uh, but also, if you look at Sabato's predictions, you really have to wonder at this point whether or not they have much to do with the facts or whether they are reflections of his own opinion. And in the long run, it doesn't matter because Larry Sabato, even though he's a talking head, he certainly is not influencing how people vote. Uh, but uh, it's interesting just because it tells you where the media is, as well as where academia is, because it comes from academia. He's at the cross, he's at the intersection of uh, the establishment media and establishment academia. Uh, so, Patrick, on this closing note for tonight, what do you think about the Larry Sabato situation? What does it say to you? I think you, well, I'm largely in agreement with you, Joseph. Um, it shows a, a trend and evolution to um, overt, explicit partisanship. Um, I mean, I, you know, back to student days, uh, I started reading and following Larry Sabato. I had a great deal of respect for his work. Um, and I think he did a, an excellent job for a very long time of maintaining a, a sort of public neutrality. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that most of his pundit peers attempted to do, and many in the media did. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, it, it's, as you say, recently, uh, certainly in the tr- era of Trump, yeah. um, it's that, that, that's clearly changed. And it, it's hard to know to what extent this is simply the logical evolution of um, journalism and punditry and academia, or whether to what extent it is um, the Trump phenomenon, you know, the Trump effect. Um, because it seems that under Trump, there are just so many journalists and academics and pundits who feel they now have license to just say what they think. Uh-huh. You know, and it's it's um, it's it's like there's a, the 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 risk of Trump, the cost of Trump is so great that the normal rules don't apply. I mean, I something that's really stuck in my mind since 2016. Um, during the campaign, you know, the 2016 campaign, there were, it was, I may have the numbers not quite right, but it was basically something like this. You know, the New York Times put, put aside something like three dozen reporters just to investigate, not to cover Trump in the normal way, but just to investigate Trump, to find dirt on Trump. Mm-hmm. And about two dozen at the Washington Post, right? Uh-huh. So this is this is how, this is how they. So this is not news shocking, but this is how they approached Trump. Would you say, well, given they weren't doing that to Hillary, they've never done that to Hillary. In fact, giving us soft coverage isn't that kind of strange. Well, the someone wrote uh, the New York Times ombuds public ombudsman published a letter. It was to his credit. Some a reader wrote in, I mean, no Trump supporter, but they wrote in and sort of played the sort of the good old journalism card and said, look, this doesn't seem fair that you're Mm -hmm. going at Trump like this. You're kind of campaigning against him. This doesn't seem like the New York Times. I remember, you know, what's up? Mm -hmm. And to be fair to the ombudsman, he wrote back and said, well, it's all different now, isn't it? We're not fair. We're not impartial. We're not balanced when it comes to Trump, because it's so we have decided as a newspaper, it is of paramount importance that Trump doesn't become president. Everything else is secondary. So we must write about him and cover him in this way. And they've continued to put it mildly in that vein, as has the Washington Post, as has the nearly all of the mainstream media and all its platforms. And the Larry Sabatos and others, I think, feel the same way. 
They've never believed that someone was so dangerous, so horrible in their lifetimes. And some of them would argue in any lifetime that he has to be taken down, whether it's through their words, their, 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 their biased, prejudicial words, or through its extrajudicial, extra legal measures, whatever it is, it's just so important, right? Um, and, you know, it's, it's a little like the, the, the explanation that, I, that is accurate about why some insignificant um, uh, government worker, elections officer in some small town in some small state in the country uh, would have added duplicate ballots or taken out ballots from in 2020 because that person had been convinced by the media and her and their party that Donald Trump was worse than Hitler. If you believe Donald Trump is worse than Hitler, you genuinely believe that, well, what's a few votes? What's a few fudged ballots in the larger, you know, in the larger scheme of things? And these folks think that journalism, the virtues of values of journalism, the ethics of journalism are not as important as stopping Trump. And I think it's all part of this, you know, this derangement syndrome, this well-documented Trump derangement syndrome. Um, and I, sadly, that's where we are. It's a terribly sad situation which has unfolded. Uh, it's <clears throat> it's crazy. Uh, Sabato himself, I've heard him, uh, I've read what he says, there's no question what he believes. I don't know how far he thinks things should go in opposing Trump, <laughs> but it's clear that he thinks things should uh, at least go so far as to have a... Uh, uh, an individual such as himself, who was previously at least shown to the world as being nonpartisan, take a very partisan stance. And I don't think it's a problem with the media being openly partisan in the sense that you mentioned. So certainly his uh, change is a sign of the times. And, you know, that's uh, it's sad. It's sad for everyone. Oh, absolutely. It, 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 re it really is. Uh, it just, you know, it just shows you how off course we are, how, how out of kilter. Mm -hmm. And the, the outstanding question is, you know, can we correct? Is there course correction possible? Is it? Is it? You know, are there enough people who desire it? Can they agree enough on the on the correct what the correction should be? And even if they if there are enough people and they agree on the course correction, what it should be, what it should look like, can it? Is it achievable? I'm not sure I can you know definitively answer yes to any of those questions at the moment. Uh, on that bright note, Patrick, thank you very much for having stopped by tonight. It's been a great discussion, really. I'm glad we got to have it. We uh, addressed many uh, very, very important things. And uh, there are many important things still to address. Obviously, we'll be just conversing regularly over the next year uh, as uh, your polling data is released. Uh, we'll be working with the Express, needless to mention. And uh, there will be plenty of stuff to go over, uh, as I mentioned, on a regular basis. Thank you, Joseph. It's been a great couple of hours. Um, always enjoy it. Look forward to the next one. Hope your audience uh, enjoy it as well. And uh, yeah, there's um, our uh, our friends in politics and government and journalism. They one thing we can, can count on is they will not uh, fail us when it comes to producing more and more interesting things for us to talk about. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, absolutely. That, that's putting it mildly. Uh, everyone, please stay safe. Be well. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the chat as much as Patrick and I did. See you next time. And cheers. <laughs>